0: Our scripture this morning is found in the book of Luke, in chapter 14, uh, verses 15 through 24. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bible, that's on page 924. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, "Come, for all things are ready." But they, with all with one accord, began to make excuses. The first said to him, "I bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me have me excused." And another said, "I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused." Still another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I can't come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it's done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, go into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper.
1: This morning I'd like for us to take a mental journey together. I want us to try to travel back in our minds and think of the very best meal you've ever enjoyed. This is the best meal you've ever experienced in your entire life. Maybe it was a family meal and you came together for Thanksgiving supper or for a birthday dinner and you had all of the family around and you remember that feeling because food always tastes better when you're with family and you were able to see all those loved ones that you cared about so much. Maybe it was a meal you had with some friends. Maybe you were able to reconnect with some old friends and reminisce, think about old times. Maybe it's a really special event in your life where you were able to get together with people that you love and enjoy being around and have a meal together. Maybe it was a meal prepared for you by a spouse. Or a brother or a sister or another family member where you were able to sit and just have a quiet time together and you enjoyed that. Whatever that case may be, I'd like for us all to put that meal in our minds. Let's try to take ourselves there in our minds. How does, how does the food look on the table? Whether it's ham or, or turkey or, or chicken, maybe some mashed potatoes and gravy or some, some cornbread and some fried okra. Whatever you envision on that table, how does the food look? Can you remember how it smelled? You know that aroma that you get when you can tell that supper's about ready? You know how how good that feels to have that smell? Can you remember how it smelled to sit around and then you're sitting at the table and you're enjoying the food as you look around at people you love and you have one of those moments where you just think, I don't know if it can get any better than this. This is wonderful. I'm really enjoying this time together. Now I want us to get that picture, that mental image firmly in our mind because I want to ask you a question. What if I told you that every single one of us in this room this morning has been invited to a feast that is far better than the one that we have in our mind? One that would just blow that one out of the water. It would put it to shame. We wouldn't even be able to compare the two. What if I told you that every single one of us could come to a feast that was far greater than anything we've ever experienced on earth? You see, as Jesus describes the kingdom of God, I think it's interesting that he uses several metaphors and and parables. He tries to paint pictures using different images. I'm convinced that the reason he does that is because there's no one image that can totally cover everything contained in that phrase, the kingdom of God. There's no one metaphor that can really do it justice. And this morning, we're going to look at a way in which Jesus describes what the kingdom of God is like, what it's like to be invited into that kingdom. And he uses the image... Of a feast. As we think about what it means to come together and to have a feast, I'm reminded of the dinner table that Catherine and I have in our home. It's the same dinner table that I grew up with, it was in my dining room as long as I can remember. And if your home is anything like mine, everyone had a specific place around the table. I don't know if, if you had that same kind of situation, but when you came in for a meal, I can think specifically of where the different family members would sit everyone had their certain place. And when we had visitors, I can think of where the visitors would sit. And there's something reassuring about that, isn't there? To think about your place at the table. Even now, when Catherine and I eat on that table, I usually sit in the same place I sat growing up. I mean, there's something about having that place assured. And every single one of us here this morning has a place at the table. We all have an invitation to join the Father in His table, to be a part of that feast. Just as Phil led us in singing, all things are ready, come to the feast. It's that feast that we're going to be thinking about and studying about this morning. So I'd invite you, if you haven't already, turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Uh, we'll be spending most of our time there and also looking at Second Samuel chapter 9 as we try to get a real life application to this story. And while you're turning there, let me tell you how excited we are to have everyone here this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we hope that you will stick around and be a part of our Bible classes after worship and let us get to know you. Uh, we want to help you in any way possible. As we think about our Bible classes, uh, we do have a, a slight change in our, our classroom situation. Our ladies' class will be meeting in the fellowship hall, as you saw the signs, and our timers' class will be meeting right across from the library. And so we want everyone to be a part of our Bible classes as we study and we learn together. But at the very beginning of Luke 14, Luke sets the scene for where we're going to see Jesus teaching. Now, Jesus is the master teacher. And so we're going to see him use elements that are taking place in the room around him to really illustrate what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. But in the very first verse of Luke chapter 14, we see that Jesus went into the house of a ruler of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath. Now, this wasn't just any house. This was a ruler of the Pharisees, that, uh, that legalistic sect of Jews that was always trying to trap Jesus with questions. And it's very interesting to see Jesus' response as he goes in to share a meal on that important day of the week, that Sabbath day. He begins by healing someone and then trying to, to ask the, the Jews a question. He can't get a response on whether or not it's right to heal on the Sabbath. And he illustrates to them how he can do good on the Sabbath. And after that, he hears, uh, as he looks around him, he hears and sees people as they're sort of trying to get in the right position and, and sit at the right part of the table. Because usually as you were reclining in a, in a table back then, you would have probably had a table that was, that was U-shaped oftentimes. And so the center of that table, no matter how it was set up, if you were at the center of the table, that was a place of prominence. That was a place where you wanted to be sitting. You wanted to sit at the head of that table. And you can imagine in a group that was as concerned about politics and, and position as the Pharisees were, they were all sort of you know, jockeying for position and trying to see how, how close they could get to the head of the table, how, how high up on the list could they get that prominent position. And so in verse 7, Jesus sees that they're trying to choose the best places to sit. And so he tells them this parable, illustrating to them that when they're invited to a feast, they shouldn't go for sitting in the best places. Because someone more honorable than them might come along and they'll have to go somewhere else. They should sit in the lowly places. It's always better to be promoted to a good place than demoted to a place that's not quite as prominent. And he even tells them that when they throw feasts that they should be concerned about inviting those who are lame, who are are poor, who who are sick, who are maimed, those people that are kind of on the fringes of society. Jesus tells them those are the people that you should be reaching out to. And so it's in that context that one of the individuals there at the feast, one of the Jews that was present with him, Remarks on how wonderful it will be to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus, the master teacher, he takes that opportunity to tell them a little bit about the kingdom of God. I think it's interesting that he's here sitting with one of the most exclusive groups in, in Christianity. and it, it, Or not Christianity at that time, but before we read about it in the, the New Testament, we see an exclusive group as we think about Judaism. Later on, even a group of that sect is going to become Christians, and we're going to see what, what attitudes they have to struggle with in their Christian life. But right now, as Jesus is dealing with this exclusive group, uh, we see Him trying to send clear messages to them, not once, but twice, as He talks about those people they should be bringing in, they should be inviting. You see, eating at a table with someone was a very specific and a very powerful form of fellowship in that time. That's why they were so critical of Jesus eating with with tax collectors and sinners. He was eating with them. He was sharing a table with them. And so it's interesting to see that as Jesus talks about a feast, he says in verse 16, "...a certain man gave a great supper, and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things now are ready. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses." The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Then another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. As Jesus describes this feast that is being thrown, we get some insight into what it means to have an invitation to be a part of God's kingdom, to come to the Lord's table and to be a part of his feast. The first lesson that Jesus really teaches us is that no excuse is too important. No excuse is so important that we have to pass up on this invitation. No excuse is is so worthwhile that it's worth passing up an invitation to be a part of the Lord's table, to be a part of His kingdom. In fact, the same Jesus who is telling them this is the Jesus who in Matthew chapter 8, verse 21, was encountered by a disciple who came to Him and said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me, let the dead bury their own dead. In verse 22... You see, he was dealing with a question that was seemingly very very noble, very worthwhile. All we know about this man is the question that he asked. We don't know about his motives. We do know that taking care of the dead was something that was very highly valued. Even in the book of, of Exodus in chapter 20, we see God placing a great deal of value on taking care of burying your own dead. And so this man comes to Jesus and he asks him that. And Jesus makes a strong statement saying that there is nothing more important than following the Savior. Jesus is telling them there is nothing more important than following me. And so as we think about making excuses, we realize that there's no excuse too important to come to the Lord's table. It's interesting to think about these guests. It seems from the way Jesus describes this that they'd already been invited. Uh, They'd apparently accepted that initial invitation because the servant is just going out to tell them that all things are ready. The servant is going out to say, now it's time to come and be a part of this. And feasts in that day were often more than just one simple evening. Uh, wedding feasts could last even up to a week. In fact, in John chapter 2, when he records Jesus' first miracle in that book of turning the water to wine, it's at a wedding feast. And the reason that they had run out of wine is probably because feasts didn't last just a few hours. That could be a big deal. That was a big ordeal. And so it was a significant investment of time. And we start to hear these excuses. Almost with one accord, they all start making excuses. And I think these three excuses give us some insight into excuses we're tempted to make in our lives. The first man had a great deal of land he had just bought, and he had to go and inspect it. So excuse number one for this man, and often for us, is the excuse of possessions. He had just bought something he had to go look at. Now, of course, the obvious question is, wouldn't he have inspected it or looked at it before he bought it? And so likely he would have seen it, but maybe he had to go and inspect it to close the deal. Maybe he was just so excited about this new purchase. He wanted to go and walk around on that piece of land and see how far he owned and, and see the, the new purchase that he had received. But whatever the case was, he was not going to wait around until after the supper. He had to take care of it right then. He had to spend time with that possession right then. And I have to ask myself the question, am I letting my possessions stand in the way of accepting the invitation? Am I letting my possessions stand in the way of a relationship with God? Because in this country, we are very good at gathering possessions, aren't we? We can get so much stuff in our house that we can fill our closets and our attics and garages and basements and we can build sheds outdoors to put our stuff in and we can rent storage units. I mean, we're very, very talented at collecting stuff. And it's not that there's anything intrinsic in that stuff, those blessings God has given us, that's bad. But as soon as we let those blessings force us to pass up the invitation, we've made the same mistake this man did. As soon as we receive the invitation from God and decide, I care more about something I've just purchased or something I need to take care of, than I do accepting my invitation with God. I want to study this, this collection of possessions I have rather than, than spend time in God's Word. I want to spend time going out and, and trying to earn more money so that I can have more stuff than I want to in serving God. It's similar to the man that Jesus would have talked about just a few chapters earlier in Luke chapter 12. Verses 13 through 21, he tells that story of, of the rich fool who wanted to continue to, to build bigger barns so that he could store everything in. And then even that night, his life was taken from him. Because life doesn't consist in the abundance of our possessions. And see, if we let our possessions take control of our life and try to make excuses because of what we have, we're making the same mistake that Jesus would have mentioned that rich man making. Our possessions may impress other people, maybe our friends at school, co-workers, maybe even other families in the neighborhood, but the one individual that will not be impressed is God. We can't have enough to impress our Lord. What our Lord wants is for us to accept our invitation. So we have to make sure we're not using this as an excuse. The second excuse we see is similar to that of possessions, but we also see that as a man was wanting to purchase some oxen, five yoke of oxen, we see that... uh, the excuse of work can also be something that comes into play. It's interesting to see this purchase that he would have made. In verse 19, as he talks about, I've bought five yoke of oxen. Uh, many say that this purchase would have meant that this was a wealthy individual, uh, that he would have been about two to five times as wealthy as the average citizen. I mean, this was someone who was very prominent. He was doing very well. And, and the more oxen he had, the more ground he could take care of, the more fields he could work. And so he decides that these oxen need to be inspected and it doesn't need to wait until after the feast. It has to be done right now. And that's the way work can, can do to us many times, isn't it? That's, that's the sort of trick that we get played on in our mind that we just have to take care of it right now. It has to be done right now. It can't wait. I've got to take care of this task right now. We know that God wants us to work and to work hard. In fact, Paul wrote to a church in Thessalonica that had decided because they were so excited about the Lord's coming they were just going to quit their jobs and he wrote to them in the second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10 telling them that even when we were with you well, we said if a man does not work neither let him eat and then he talks about some who had, had not only quit their jobs but they started living a disorderly life becoming busybodies and gossiping about all those around them and that's not the plan of God God wants us to work and to provide for our families but it's so easy To let our work stand in the way of our relationship with God. It's so easy to pursue something that we want. A a job that we might enjoy. and, And money that might come from that job. To pursue that at the expense of our relationship with God. So the question I have to ask myself is, Am I letting work stand in the way of my spiritual development? Am I passing up on the invitation because of work that I feel needs to be done? The third excuse that we see is the excuse of family. So you have a man who says, I've just been married. And it's really interesting, reading through the old law, there were some, some stipulations, even in, uh, in, as we read through uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20, in verse 7, that men who had just become married, they didn't have to go out to war. Uh, they, didn't have to, uh, have a, they had a year off in business. But there was nothing that would keep such a person from engaging in the social function. But it's interesting sometimes that that we can use family almost as an excuse, almost as something that that keeps us so busy that we neglect our relationship with the one who truly matters, the most important relationship we can develop, our relationship with God. I never will forget a few years ago when I attended the funeral of a young lady who was just a few years older than I was. And several of uh, the fellow students, those who had known her when she was in school, and even after she graduated, we're here, there were hundreds of people at this funeral, and as we went through and were speaking to her parents, I think I'll always remember the words that her mother and father spoke to me and to countless others that were going through that line. And they said, "The greatest gift you can give your parents is to live a Christian life." And I think there's some real significant wisdom in that. The greatest gift you can give your parents is to live a Christian life, because she was a Christian. And so even though they're going through this dark and terrible time and they're dealing with all of these emotions, they have that assurance of knowing that she lived a Christian life and that there will be a reunion. And they wanted to pass that message on to as many of us as possible. We often think about the importance parents should place on on living a Christian life and modeling that for their children. And I think that's absolutely true. But children also need to remember that the greatest gift you can give your parents is a relationship with God. In fact, the greatest gift I can give any member of my family is to maintain my relationship with the Creator. That's the best thing I can do for my family, is to be strong spiritually. As a father or husband, the best way that that individuals can provide for families is to have that strong relationship that will enable them to lead their family spiritually spiritually. As, as children, as other members of the family, the greatest gift we can give our parents and those that care for us and care about us is to live a Christian life that will not only encourage them and not only uplift them, but give them an assurance of what the future holds, of what the next life holds. So I have to ask myself, am I, am I using family as an excuse not to develop spiritually? And so as Jesus points out these excuses, we see that around the Lord's table, no excuse is too important, but also no person is too unimportant. No person is too insignificant to be included. Because I love what happens in verse twenty one. The servant came and reported these things to his master, then the master of the house, being angry, said to a servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and there is still room. And in verse twenty three the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in that my house shall be filled. No excuse is too important to pass up on an invitation, and no person is too unimportant. Now, this would have been very significant. Remember, Jesus is speaking to a group of the Pharisees. And as we think about the history of, of the biblical people, the Pharisees would have been Israelites. God's chosen people that God chose, called out to be his special people that he would work through, that eventually he would send his Messiah through. And Jesus has come, and Jesus is preaching His message, and these people who are of God's chosen race, a God's holy nation, these people aren't accepting Him. They aren't believing in Him. And so as we think about this parable, the initial invitation would have applied to the Israelites. God would have sent them an initial invitation, and yet they weren't accepting. They weren't accepting Jesus, and He is using this as a, a metaphor to describe they're not accepting this invitation. And so the others that would be included would be everyone else, all other nations, the Gentiles. You see, Jesus knows that eventually the gospel is going to go into all the world. And so he's, he's planting this message, planting this seed in the minds of the Pharisees, that the gospel isn't just for one specific nation. It's for all nations. And that one nation that God had chosen had rejected it. And so now it was going to be spread all over. It's really interesting to see in the book of Acts, as this plays itself out, to see what happens to this group. Because there was a group of the Pharisees that was converted and that became Christians. And it's interesting to see this group in Acts 15, as they're trying to decide uh, whether or not the Gentiles should go through and observe all of the old law and the new law, and how is that going to work? There was a group in the sect of the Pharisees, in verse 5, who rose up and saying it is necessary to circumcise them, to command them to keep all the law of Moses. And there was a group that was saying they need to follow the, the Old Testament before they come to the New Testament. We need to, to be Jews and Christians. They were really struggling with how that was going to work. Because the gospel had spread to a whole new group of people. A group of individuals that they'd been separated from for so long. And the last words that we read Paul saying in Acts chapter 28 and verse 28. were therefore let it be known to you that God has, that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And they will hear it. And so Paul is talking about the spread of the gospel among the Gentiles. You see, the Pharisees didn't get to choose who was invited to the feast. And we don't either. The gospel message is open to everyone. Our job is just to deliver it. The decision has already been made, who's invited? Everyone is invited. And our message is to go and take that invitation to them. I want us to look at a a biblical picture from the Old Testament that really illustrates this. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's on page 281 in your pew Bibles. But if you would flip over to, to 2 Samuel chapter 9, as we come to a part of the life of David... We looked at David two weeks ago and different portions of his life. And this is right before uh, we see what takes place with, with Bathsheba just a little bit later. But in 2 Samuel verse 9, David said in verse 1, Is there still anyone who is left in the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now Saul, of course, had been the king before David. Jonathan, his son, had been very close friends with David. And Saul had asked David, uh, and also Jonathan to preserve their family, not to do away with their family when David came into power. You see, it was customary for kings when they come into power to eliminate everyone else from that previous royal family. What if they decide they want the throne again? And so David is going to show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And in verse 2, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And when they called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. The king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? I like that phrase, the kindness of God. I'm going to show him the kindness of God. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And so you get this answer back to David. Can I show someone the kindness of God? And he says, well, there's still the son of Jonathan, but he's lame in, in his feet. He's, he's crippled. You know, He's not the kind of person that you would see in a palace. He's not the kind of person that would fit in with these surroundings. And yet that doesn't seem to bother David because David sins for him. And it's interesting in verse 6 when Mephibosheth, uh, this, the son that David is sent for, uh, has comes to him. Mephibosheth, you can probably imagine, as a descendant of Saul and Jonathan, was very afraid to come in the presence of the new king. I mean, it wasn't any secret to him that a normal practice was for all of the previous family to be eliminated. He might very well have been thinking, this is it. This is the end for me. And we see that he's afraid when we read in in, uh, verse 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Not only was David not going to kill Mephibosheth, he was inviting him to have the land that his grandfather Saul had possessed and also to eat continually at David's table. To eat at the king's table. What an incredible privilege. And it's interesting that Mephibosheth's response is, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? He doesn't seem to think very highly of himself, and yet David is giving him a place of honor at the table. David's reserving for him a place at the king's table. And it's just such a beautiful picture as we think of David showing the kindness of God to someone who was not a part of his family, but who was allowed to come in and be a part, to sit at the table. And in verse 9, the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and all his house. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both feet. You can imagine eating at the table of King David, Someone who is described in the Bible as being very handsome. Someone that the Israelites would have sung about because of all the battles he had fought and the, the people that he had defeated. You can imagine even his, his son Absalom coming to the table with the long flowing hair and a very, a very big muscular, probably good looking like his father. You can imagine others, sons and daughters of David gathering around. Uh, Amnon, and and then later on Tamar, who we see taking care of Amnon before he turns on her and attacks her. We also see later on Solomon. You can imagine him, the wise king that went on to gather all of that wealth, coming to the table. And if there's one person that didn't quite fit in, it would have been Mephibosheth, wouldn't it? One person that didn't quite fit into that picture. Someone who slowly labors to get up to the table, to pull himself up to have a place at the king's table. But what's interesting is that even though he wasn't a part of that family, even though he might not have fit in, he had a place sitting around the king's table. Sometimes it's hard for me to identify with a good-looking David warrior king. Sometimes it's hard for me to identify with a wise ruler that has the wisdom of Solomon. But I can identify with Mephibosheth. Sometimes I feel like him, like I just don't fit in. Like I'm not good enough, I don't know why God would have invited me to the table. But I have a place, just like he did. God has shown me that same kind of kindness that David showed him. And Mephibosheth got to sit at the same table as the sons and daughters of David. He got to eat the same meal. He got to be a part of that family. It's a beautiful picture of grace. When we think about our place at the table, I love the way that this parable Jesus shares with the Pharisees ends. Because in verse 22, the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded. And notice that last phrase, there is still room. Verse 23, then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges, compel them to come in, that my house shall be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. And that's what we're left with in the parable. We're left with the fact that there's still room. And I think that's a wonderful application for us spiritually. You see, there's still room at the table. There's room for every single one of us and every single person that we meet every day in life. There is still room at the table. And for as long as we live on this earth, there will be a place for every person we come in contact with at the Lord's table. Every single person. What a shame it would be if we didn't share that invitation. The invitation is not only our blessing as Christians, it's our calling to share with other people. It may be that you have never been able to sit at a table with your family before. You've never enjoyed that kind of meal. There's a place for you at this table. You might be here this morning and you might feel like you don't fit in, that you don't have a group that you can call your own, that you don't have a family. There's a place for you at this table. You may feel like you have done so much wrong that there's no way you could turn your life around. There's no way you could begin that right relationship with God, but there's a place for you at this table. Every single one of us has an invitation to a feast that's far greater than we could imagine. Oscar Wilde was fond of telling short stories. He told the story about his aunt... One time, and he said that his aunt was so excited about a social gathering taking place at her home that she bought a new dress and she was all dressed up. Her house was cleaned and decorated, and she was waiting for everyone to arrive. Seven o'clock came and went, and no one was there. Eight o'clock came and went, and no one was there. And on to 11 and then midnight. And then finally, she went to bed embarrassed and she couldn't even bear to face anyone else the next day because of what had happened. He said that it wasn't until later on, after her funeral, that they discovered she had never sent out any invitations. She was so excited about this event, but she didn't invite anyone. Wouldn't it be a shame for us as Christians to be so excited about a place at the table, to be so excited about accepting this invitation that we forget to invite anyone, that we forget to share that invitation with other people? We should leave here this morning excited, exhilarated, that we'll be able to share in that spiritual feast. That all things are ready and that we have a chance to come to the feast. But we should also be that much more enthusiastic about sharing that invitation with others. This morning, if you want to come and have a place at the table, if you want to have a place in the kingdom, if you want to put Christ on in baptism and begin that obedient life, There's no reason to wait. There's no reason to delay. No excuse is too important and no person is too unimportant to be included in the kingdom of God. And whatever situation you are in, God would tell us all things are ready. Respond to my invitation. Come to the feast. If we can help you, please come as we